0: Well, as you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3, I am going to have to make a confession. I was really struggling with the title and the direction that I wanted to go uh, with today's sermon. And a lot of that stemmed from a verse that as I was reading this through several times this week, I got hooked up on verse 22, which is the closing verse is where we'll end today. But notice what verse 22 says. Solomon kind of closing out this chapter, he says, I have seen nothing is better than man should be happy in his activities. And I had to resist the urge to have today's sermon titled, Happy, Happy, Happy. <laughs> and I wanted to do that, but then I, as I was thinking about that, that's kind of, and sounds, when you read through this text, you're going, how does pastor get happy out of this? But we're going to go through that. But I think that what we want to talk about today is not so much being happy as it is as to what it is to be filled and the idea of being filled with joy and that's, that's kind of the theme that I ended up developing as I, as I walked through this message and again, reading the text several times I was really impacted by the idea of, of what is it that we are to be filled with in our lives? If we desire happiness, if we desire contentment, if we desire joy, and, and we all do to greater or lesser degrees, right? what is it that we would need to seek to be filled with? All right. So that, that was my theme. So the theme is going to stem from this idea. As we would look through the remainder of chapter 3, what does Solomon say about filling an empty life? What does Solomon say about filling an empty life? All right. So let's take a time and let's look at the text just a little bit here. I love uh, verse 11. And this is probably one of those verses, too, that you are familiar with. But notice the first part of verse 11. It says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has made everything appropriate in his time. Now, for those of you that are looking at your Bibles, thank you. What's another word? Some of your versions have another word. I have appropriate. What's another word you have? beautiful, very good, beautiful, alright? And what Solomon is saying is that he's saying, he's saying everything is beautiful in its time. Now it's interesting, the word beautiful or appropriate um, does oftentimes refer to physical beauty, alright? As you go through scripture, if you look up that word in the Hebrew and go back, you're going to see that it oftentimes does refer to physical beauty. But it also refers to something that is beautiful in form and in function and in purpose all right, and that's the idea that I believe Solomon is trying to bring to us today that when he's saying that every season or God makes all seasons or all times appropriate or beautiful in their times he's saying that under God's guidance all of our seasons and all of our times have a form they have a function and they have a purpose and that's why Solomon am going to say all things are beautiful. He made all things beautiful in their time, that we would recognize that God is at work in all of these seasons. Now, last week, we spent a whole sermon going through the first eight verses, right? And if you look at your Bible there or your smartphone, you're going to see all these different kinds of seasons of time that uh, Solomon was walking us through, and we should be reminded again as a reminder, we need to be reminded of the brevity of human life. That, that was some of the purpose last week. Not so much to show and to say you got to go through all these seasons, although most of us do, but the idea is to really show the brevity of human life. And I believe that when we begin to grasp that, then we go to this next thought here where God's word tells us that he makes everything appropriate or beautiful in his time. We recognize that everything God does, everything God does, he does when the time is right. All right? So when we think about this, as we read through, especially the first eight verses, as we think even about our own lives, instead of coming to a place of despair, we are called upon to be at a place of delight. We are to be at that place that we can rejoice in the beauty of time. That, that's that's the idea. That's the first truth that I think that we need to recognize. That right away, Solomon starts off here in verse 11, that we are called upon to rejoice in the beauty of time. And that's part of what it is then to fill an empty life, that we would rejoice in the beauty of that time, that we would recognize that every season and every time has form, has purpose, and has function. And ultimately and finally, everything that God permits into our life uh, falls into the same category. He uses these things, not only for our good, but for the good of those around us. And we need to recognize that today, that God is indeed sovereign over all of our times and over all of our seasons. And that's part of of what this verse speaks to us of. Now, what I think is interesting is that last week, We focused a lot on God's sovereignty. And those first eight verses really depict, you know, these different seasons of time that God permits into our lives. And we would rightly recognize that God is sovereign. God is in control. God uh, is in control of times and seasons and all things. And not only is God sovereign, but I believe that this first verse that we talk about today, it proves out that God is also compassionate. He has made everything beautiful. He has made everything appropriate in its time. And what that tells us is that God is at work for good in all of our seasons. Now, granted this, we, we don't recognize that. In fact, I would say maybe more times than not, we may wonder just what is God up to in this? But we have to recognize that as we trust the scripture as we trust the inspiration of the holy spirit through solomon that he makes this declaration that he indeed makes all things appropriate he indeed makes all things beautiful in its time and that means god is compassionate that even in the season of time that you are now in god would show you favor and god would show you compassion and miss that because god is a sovereign god and god is a compassionate god all right. So all things are beautiful. So we need to rejoice in the beauty of time. And part of that rejoicing in the beauty of time is found in the second part of verse 11. It says, he has also set eternity in their hearts. He has also set eternity in their heart. Now, what does that mean exactly? And I think a good way to recall what that means is that when God created us, <laughs> he created us with with a, with a heart, I think first of all, to know him, but also a heart that asks questions and, and, and may, maybe maybe it's just me. but have you ever asked yourself, where is this leading? What sense does this make? where Where am I going? What am I doing? Have you, Have you ever thought about some of those things? And I think that we have, this is that idea that God has placed eternity in their hearts. And what that means is that all of us, I think all of us innately have a desire to know more, particularly about the things of God. We want to know why, we want to know how, we want to know when. And we, we add, and those, that's not bad to want to know that, that's just, I think, human nature. That's the way God created us. The dilemma comes when what happens is that God does not always share that with us. We ask all kinds of why and how questions, and guess what? It is rare that God answers them. He doesn't always tell us why. He doesn't always tell us how. And what we're called upon to do then as he sets this eternity in our hearts, we're called upon then to trust in him, to trust in the one that holds all of our times. We may not know our times, but God is the one that holds them, And he urges us here in this text to, to reflect upon that and to allow God to hold the times that we are in. And I think it's important that we would recognize that there are going to be unanswered questions. A verse that I quote often to people is Deuteronomy 29.29. And that text says simply, the secret things belong to God. And in all of your lives and in all of your seasons, there are going to be unanswered questions. And I I don't say that to be flippant or to, to downplay the importance of that. I recognize that that's a big deal. But the bottom line is this, is that God uh, doesn't owe owe it to us to answer every question. He doesn't owe it to us to lay out a blueprint for each season of time that you're in so you can see the purpose and plan in that. Part of that is what it is to walk by faith, not by sight. And God calls us to that when He makes this declaration that all of us have uh, this eternity in our heart, this urge to know more, this urge uh, to know what we're doing and all of this. But what happens to us is that ultimately it calls us to trust in Him. And it ultimately calls us, I believe, to remember that God is sovereign and to remember that God is the one that's in control, that God is the one that we can be reminded of, that his work is perfect. And in fact, verse 14 tells us that. He says, I see that everything that God has done, and notice it says, what, his, what he has done will reign forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. There's nothing we can add. There's nothing we can take away. And despite the fact that our lives sometimes seem meaningless and sometimes they seem short, we have to trust in the God that provides meaning. We have to trust in the God that is over time. God God created time. He is over time. He's not uh, ruled by time. And we need to recognize that all things are beautiful in their time and God has placed this sense of eternity in our heart that there's something more and it's okay to yearn for that. It's okay to look to him for that. It's okay to trust him in all that we would do. And I want to make a declaration today that I think, is, I think is true. That when I talk about point number one, you know, this is one of those points that's really easy to preach. I mean, rejoice in the beauty of time. There's nobody here that would argue with that. Nobody. And yet the reality is some of you are facing seasons of time that find you far from wanting to rejoice. And I want to acknowledge that today. And that's been maybe one of the reoccurring themes that I've had talking to people about Ecclesiastes is that that there's these hard times that we go through. There's uh, these difficult things that we have. There's diagnosis of cancer. There's a spouse saying, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. There's children that have fallen away and turned wayward. There's a boss that says, Sorry, you no longer are working here. And we have to acknowledge that those are some of those seasons and some of those times that we don't understand. And yet I want to make the case that we're called to rejoice in the beauty of time because finally and ultimately our faith rests upon Romans 8.28. that tells us that what? That all things work together for good to those who love God. And that's one of those verses you've got to be careful how and when you share that because sometimes it's not appropriate to share that. But ultimately, the faith that we're looking for here, the idea of rejoicing in the beauty of time, is trusting that in whatever season we're in, God is going to work a thing of beauty out of it. That's the trust that we would have. And I would say, though, however, and this is, this is the point I wanted to make, is that it is oftentimes this trust and this confidence and this faith comes after the time and not necessarily in the time. And sometimes we're in the midst of this, when we're amidst these things, it's hard for us to grasp what God is doing. But most generally, after we step away, after we step back, after we catch our breath, we can acknowledge that God is at work even amidst the things that we don't understand. And he calls us today to rejoice in the beauty of time. And one of the best ways we rejoice in the beauty of time is in trusting our times to him and to his sovereign care. All right? Rejoice in the beauty of time. I think that's step one, if you would, uh, of filling an empty life. Step two, cherish the gifts in time. All right? Cherish the gifts in time. Notice what the text says in verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Now, partly that I was going to talk on here, uh, we're going to to come back to the idea of doing good. But cherish the gifts in time, I think that's part of this idea of rejoicing. And then notice uh, Solomon goes on, and then in verse 13 he says, Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. And it's interesting because all the way through Scripture when we see Uh, this idea of eating and drinking Uh, and that's what I mean by cherish the gifts of time eating and drinking can be symbolic for all the good gifts that God gives to us clothing and home and family and all of these things we can include here and I'm going to include them here because I think that's part of cherishing the gifts in time when Solomon says that we are to eat and to drink and to joy our work he's telling us to cherish in the gifts that we have in our time and all of it we are so remarkably blessed dear friends as i woke up this morning the first words out of my mouth is thank you god for breath to breathe i mean just the very fact of being here all right no matter how long and boring the sermon is just being able to be here and breathe and listen that, that's that's kind of a gift right it is it's a gift and I think of how often we overlook even the simple things of life and we take them for granted. And yet we're going to talk later on. I was just reading this morning in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, Paul's talking about contentment and he talks about how we need to be content. If we have food and a covering or food and clothing, we should be content in that. All right? We'll come back to that in another sermon. But the idea here is that we need to cherish the gifts in time. And sadly, we don't. We, we want to gather more of those gifts, we want to keep those gifts for ourselves. But we don't spend a lot of time cherishing the gifts that we have in time. And I was reading a story about a husband and a wife. And maybe maybe this is typical in your family. Uh, but uh, husband comes home from work. The wife uh, they've been they, she's been working all day too. But she finds time. She makes this delicious meal. All right. And they sit down to eat. And it's like the husband that sits down there to eat this delicious meal that's been totally prepared by his wife. And then and then he says he says to himself or he says wife, what is my role in supper? What is my role in supper? You know what his role is? Eat the food. Eat the food. Yeah, dishes, too. Thank you, Brent. Yeah, that's dishes. I forgot. (laughs) Always some guy. Yeah. (laughs) Dishes. But first of all, you got to eat the food. Eat the food, man. The goodness that God has given to us, the goodness that God has provided to us, we're to eat the food. And we're going to read in Ecclesiastes this phrase, eat, drink, and be merry. And believe me, there's, there's a way to look at this that's right and a way to look at this wrong. It's wrong to look at that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, as, as a way of just living for want and pleasure because after all, you're going to die tomorrow and life is meaningless. That's all wrong. When Solomon says, eat, drink, and be merry, he's saying, cherish the gifts that God has given to you. Use them wisely and give thanks to God for each and every one of them, even when you're asked to do dishes after supper. Give thanks to God. And there's a blessing in that. And I think that we need to recognize that, that so often to take these little gifts for granted, and we want to do something, we want to earn something, but basically it comes down to this, eat the food. Eat the food. And then I believe it's good of us also as we think about just some of those simple gifts, I think another gift that we have is our vocation. And I'm going to go back now to verse 22. It says, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. (laughs) Happy, happy, happy. Happy in his activities. And, And part of that word there, activities, most certainly includes vocation and work. And it's interesting here, the exhortation is that we are to be happy in that which we do. And I I already know right now, there's some of you right now going, Pastor is clueless. I am miserable in my job. My boss is miserable. I don't get paid enough. You know, I can go on and on and on. I want want to speak to that heart today too because I do believe that part of what God desires for us, part of the good gifts that he gives to us and part of cherishing these gifts is that we want to love what we do. And I think there's nothing that can replace the joy of really loving what one does. Now, that doesn't mean that each and every day there's not going to be good parts and bad parts and that work is always going to be easy and that you're going to make a million dollars a year and all this stuff. I'm not saying that. But by and large, there is a desire that God has that our vocation and our work should result in pleasure, that it should result in joy in our lives. And I think far too often we do not allow the place where we're at in our place of work to allow it to bring joy to ourselves. So the best way to bring joy to yourself at your place of work, guess what it is? It's bring joy to others. Do your job. Do your job. Bring joy to others was reading this week about a college student that was working her way through college and she was working at a fast food restaurant. They didn't name the restaurant. Let's pretend it's McDonald's, all right? And she was working her way through and she said, you wouldn't know how difficult it is to work at a fast food restaurant because the people are fill in the blank. I mean, people are I said stupid at the first service. That's probably not the best word to use, but people are are just crazy sometimes and they expect everything and she said sometimes her coworkers get really frustrated with the people that she works with and their customers, and she said this is what grounds me, she said I come back to this now she's a believer of course, she comes back to this, she says I recognize that even when I'm serving somebody a hamburger and fries that I am the hands and feet of Jesus and that place that I'm in, that workplace that I'm in, that vocation that God has placed me in in this season of time, I want to be a light for him And I do believe that all of us could probably benefit from that attitude of of recognizing that, yeah, there's going to be days work is miserable. There's going to be days your boss is grumpy. There's going to be days that all things go wrong. But ultimately and finally, this verse 22 speaks to us that God wants us to find a joy in our work. And I think a large measure of finding joy in the work is just recognizing the blessing you can be for others at that place of work. And I want us to recognize what Solomon says about this. And I think this is so critical and urgent for us today uh, that we would recognize that this is so uh, very true, that this idea that we are to have uh, this this place of contentment, that we are to have uh, this place of happiness, this is only possible to us when we recognize that this is all a gift. Verse 13, eat and drink and drink and see good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. And our work is truly valuable and truly worthy and truly a blessing when we recognize that all that we would do is essentially a gift from God. So I'm going to urge us today, as we seek to fill an empty life, that we would, first of all, rejoice in the beauty of time. Number two, that we cherish the gifts in time, and thirdly that we do good in the course of time do good in the course of time now you probably figured out where i took this one from i took this one from verse 12 again it talks about i know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime now this is an exhortation and all lutheran pastors get really nervous with phrases like do good <laughs> you know do good do this And I think it's really incumbent upon us that we recognize a little bit of background here. So Solomon is saying, that this is what he's recognizing. He's saying, you know, do good and enjoy your job. Cherish the simple gifts, but do good. What's he mean by that? Now, first of all, I think it's really important that we recognize that all the way through Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament, when there's this idea of doing good, who are we doing good to? Who? What What's Scripture say about your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. So I think the first measure of doing good, of course, is what are we doing for our neighbor? What are we doing for our co-worker? What are we doing for our boss? What are we doing for those in our midst? And the idea, of course, when we talk about doing good, it has to start there love your neighbor as yourself and sadly so many of us we are really good at loving ourselves none of us have to take a class on how to love myself I don't have to take a class on how to be selfish I don't have to take a class on how to seek my own best interest I don't need that but what I do need is a lesson of the Holy Spirit how to love my neighbor how to love those in my midst that aren't exactly lovable how to love those in my midst that may not even agree the things that I agree with or like the things that I like But I think a part of doing good is to understand that, first of all, this doing good is done to a neighbor, it's done to somebody else. It's not about me. I'm not doing good to me. I don't need any help doing that. What I need help with by the Holy Spirit is to do good to those around me. I think as Solomon exhorts us here, he's talking us uh, to do good to those around us. Now, This is where we get snagged up as Lutherans. Why why do we do that? What's our motive, all right? Number one is this. The most important thing we need to remember about deeds and good works and doing good is we need to remember why we do them. We do not do them in order to get something. We do them because of what we have received. All right, what that means is this. We are not doing these good gifts in order to get favor with God. We're not doing these good deeds or being kind or showing love to our neighbor in order that I can get some brownie points before God. But rather, these deeds, this love even, stems from an acknowledgement of all that I have already been given in Jesus. The greatest and most perfect gift is already mine in Christ. And we recognize what he has done, what he has given to us. It's then we can especially rightly respond in, in deeds around us. Not again, not to get anything but rather because of what we have received in what we have in Christ. So that that's our, that's our motive. Now, I think Solomon, though, expounds upon that a little bit, and I, I think it's good because there's a soberness in the remainder of this text. Notice what else he talks about here. We're going to talk about that motive. We've kind of talked on that, but notice in verse 16, what's Solomon say in verse 16? He talks about, Uh, that he sees justice in place of justice there is wickedness and the place of righteousness there is wickedness and then verse 17 says I said to myself God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and every deed is there I think it's good of us also to recognize with soberness that there is a judicial assessment and a judicial sentencing to every deed that is done in the course of time now that's comforting but it's also convicting and I think all of us have probably faced some measure of injustice all of you have been unfairly treated all of you have been slandered all of you have had people think ill thoughts towards you do bad things towards you and if you haven't it's gonna happen right that's what's gonna happen and there is within us and a natural tendency of a desire to take things into our own hands and to get even and to get ahead and all this stuff. And I want to encourage you today that this text, this is the comfort that every deed has its day. Every deed has its day. And there is a judge who judges perfectly and wisely and a judge who judges Finally. Now, that, that, that's a comfort, but it's also it's convicting because it works both ways. And it reminds us that we too are judged. There is an evaluation, if you would. They're going to be asked how we used our time, how we used our opportunities, how we used the gifts that God has given to us. And I, I believe we're going to have to give an assessment of that and, and because of what Solomon says that that's one of the reasons you want to make the best use of our time. That's why we want to do good because of the fact that there is a judgment, there is an accounting, and we, we're not called upon to waste time, but to cherish time and to do good in that time, right. So I think that's part of it. And then notice a little later on, Solomon talks about a test. He talks about this testing of mankind. And I want to point that out because I think this is important. Verse 18 talks about a test. It says, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. So what's he talking about? A couple things here. First of all, this idea of testing always involves a purifying process. It's a way by which... Uh, your, your true intentions or true composition is found out. It's used of chaff and wheat. It's used of silver and dross, heating it up and returning it removing the dross so just pure silver remains. And I think that when Solomon is talking about this testing, that I think part of what that includes is, is just really simply this. Are, are you going to believe what the Bible says about you? And are you going to believe what the Bible says about God? Beasts don't believe, they, they don't care. And Solomon is comparing us to beasts. And I think part of that testing is, do, do you believe the scriptures? Do you, do you believe what God says about himself? Do you believe what God says about you and your need for a savior? And then I think secondly, in context of what we talked about, Solomon is asking us this, are you seeking to fill an empty life? With empty things? Are you seeking to fill your life with things of the world? Or are you seeking to fill your life with the things of the Lord? And I think that's a fair question to ask and a fair test, if you would, to consider. And then Solomon closes kind of a not an odd verse, but this idea of animals and men die, and we don't know where their breath goes. And I want to urge you today as we think about those verses as you maybe ponder on them later to recognize that Solomon is not making a case here for heaven and hell. He, he's not making, that's not the point. Solomon's point is this, that men and animals are the same in this characteristic. They all have breath and they all experience breath death breath and death and dust unite man and beast and the idea that man under the sun that, that that's that's our lot we live and we die that's the lot Solomon is not talking about eternity we'll come back to that later but he's talking about rather this idea of dust to dust and both animals and man come to that same place that's Solomon's point